0: Welcome to Acquisitions Anonymous, internet's number one podcast about buying, selling, and operating small businesses. Co-host Michael Gridley here. Uh, We did something really unique today, uh, which is I've been getting a ton of questions from people about what's going on in the debt markets for small businesses, you know, borrowing for banks, borrowing for private lenders. uh, And we spent about a half an hour talking about what we're seeing and what's happening in the market. And then what you, as a borrower, who is using that to fund your business, uh, can do to do better and navigate this situation. So a uh, big experiment for us. Let us know what you thought. And uh, here is the episode. Our sponsor for today is Rejig, a platform that facilitates direct introductions between SMB owners looking for exits and SMB buyers. They have an in-house team doing proprietary outreach to find owners considering exits, and then they let buyers on their platform message them directly to set up introductory calls. Learn more about their model at... Rejig slash AA, and that's R E J I G G dot com. Rejig, and tell them that we sent you. Thanks. uh By the way, for our listeners, I showed up late to the recording today. I showed up and interrupted the conversation between Mills and Heather, and then uh, redirected Boomerang to everything to start an episode <laughs> that's totally unconventional <laughs> for us. So you just got grid Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Well, cool. So actually what we were talking about before we started recording was the debt markets for business buying and business funding right now are like super interesting. And I think it's something, I just did my whole co-office hours. I had a bunch of people asking like, what are you hearing from banks? What are you hearing from lenders? And we started talking about it and I was like, we should click record. So this is the moment. So maybe what are you guys seeing? Like what's happening with debt options at this point? And Heather, I've heard you're an expert.
1: Yeah, I, I am. So, and it's really fascinating now that I have Viso Business Capital, I'm able to really shop bank to bank, and you know, see how they each look at deals differently. The main thing that I am seeing is that it's super difficult to get non SBA debt if on a cash flow basis. If you're going for SBA, it's a little tighter. They're wanting to be a little more thorough. Um, you know. Better deal structures, you know, uh, not as much leverage, more seller note, that kind of thing. But not, it's not drastically different on the SBA side, at least from what I'm seeing. What is drastically different is non SBA. Um, Number one, banks want you to be bigger than they used to. So they used to maybe say one and a half million, two million. EBITDA was okay for a conventional loan, not anymore. Three, three and a half million minimum. And they would still like it to be even larger than that. So they want a bigger company. They are super picky. Um, I've I've seen some very good deals that definitely would have been easy to get done maybe a year ago where banks would just find or the lenders would just find one little thing to be kind of picky about and say, oh, no, now we can't do it because of that little thing. Um, Even in one case, uh, the bank otherwise liked the deal, but said the company wouldn't have enough deposits relative to the amount they would be borrowing. So they didn't like that ratio um, that what it would do to their liquidity. Um, And remember, like banks are now looking at their deposit totally different than they used to. They used to be able to predict their deposit inflows and outflows pretty well. And after the Silicon Valley Bank collapse, that changed. And they all know that that's not as predictable as it used to be. So that's factoring in as well. It's not just economic conditions, but it's banking conditions.
2: It's tough. So you have all that as the backdrop, and then you also have... Rising interest rate environment. <laughs> Happy Thursday to you too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm so cheerful. Yeah,
2: but then you have you have a rising interest rate environment. You know, with a lot of uncertainty that's being priced in. I think it's helpful just to say on the the range of sources of capital, and they're kind of thinking about lowest cost of capital all the way up to highest. When SBA and depository based lenders, which are the the lowest costs of capital providers when all of a sudden their cost of capital goes up and they're pricing in risk the entire spectrum behind them also does the same thing and probably even on an exponential scale not just on a linear fashion and so if SBA debt is kind of the the cheapest on a relative cost of capital basis and then depository lenders who are going to hold the loans on their own balance sheet but non-SBA, slightly more expensive. They have different underwriting cr- criteria, but it's still fundamentally, you know, very similar. Then, in my mind, and Heather, you tell me if, if you see it differently. You move to um, kind of debt funds, or you know, more cash flow based lenders who maybe don't even have a depository. They they're not a bank, right? They may not have a bank charter, uh, but they could just be a fund who is loaning money on a spread. And then you move even further up and say, okay, here's somebody who's in that same category, but it's, it's kind of more mes debt. It's bridge financing and their cost of capital to you as a buyer is significantly more like used to be maybe mid teens. And now it's like high teens, low twenties. Um, and then the only thing to me past that on the spectrum is, um, maybe the category of, of kind of, uh, working capital financing, um, you know, factoring your receivables, Um, You know, things that are very, very expensive and then pass that its equity, giving up equity, you know, in exchange for for capital.
1: Yeah, you got it. That's that's exactly right. And and the cost of of capital went up for every single one of those players in that spectrum uh, all the way down to what is the cheapest still SBA. But now SBA is 10 and a half, 11 percent just where we stand now. If uh, the Fed raises again, you know, we're we're above 11 percent for the for the safest, cheapest debt. So yes, mm-hmm. it definitely changes the entire spectrum and and makes it more challenging for everybody.
0: So a f- a phenomenon that I'm seeing that I think is really interesting is you know we talk about this idea of my price your terms a mm-hmm. lot, and there is a trend now that sellers still want to get old valuations for stuff. But the you know the idea of structured earnouts and seller financing at reasonable rates has become much more palatable to them. So they're bridging the gap here to make some of these deals get done. And there are things like you know f- fixed earnout sizes, but they shift up and down based on performance of the company each year. Uh, you're seeing just straight up seller notes, and then. My absolute favorite, the holdback, which basically turns out to just be a seller note that is 0% interest, but people don't really think about it that way. But that is a phenomenon. Like if you're a buyer right now, sellers want to bridge that, but they still mentally have themselves anchored in the price that they had in 2022. And they're willing to, you know, do some of what the take some of the role that the banks are abdicating a little bit.
1: Yeah. And speaking of those different levers you can pull with the seller to try to bring the deal together, SBA doesn't allow earnouts, not real earnouts. So that they take one of those away from you when you're trying to do an SBA deal, and so now yep. what you really have left is you know seller notes, what we call forgivable seller notes that are not tied to new growth, but they're tied to maintaining some historic level of performance, and we have now rollover equity in SBA, which we never had before. That's a new one. That's going to play out really interestingly. Um, you know, it's not always a good idea. Sometimes it could be, but um, you know, those are the different levers we can pull, and for sure. The sellers are carrying bigger notes and you know better terms lately.
2: Yeah, it's, yeah, it's super fun. Well, just one one question on those different levers. I I feel like creativity sometimes works to my advantage, but then sometimes people are also like, no, that that's incredibly stupid. That would never work. But are there <laughs> scenarios where people say, you know, hey, okay, I won't do an earnout, but I want to pay the seller, you know, a ridiculously high salary for six months because doesn't the SBA cap it at like no more than six or twelve months?
1: Well, here's the new rule. When they when there's no rollover equity, yes, they have to leave in 12 months. When there is rollover equity, they can stay indefinitely. So you could have okay. the seller still be in a role of some kind in the business. So it kind of depends on what that will be. What role?
2: Cuz I'm thinking you could skew their salary, you know, way above market and and kind of like wink wink, you know, hey, this is not an earnout, but it's a way to say it's performance-based or something like that.
1: At well, a comp. That's been tried. And most lenders that are SBA lenders anyway, will say, no, we'll get, we, the bank will get criticized by SBA for going around the earnout rule by doing that, where there's no written rule per se against it. Most banks wouldn't yeah. go for it.
2: In practice, it won't happen. Yeah. What about rent on, on uh real estate leaseback back from the sellers? Cause I know like it, it's sometimes hard to pin down what is market rate rent and, and, usually there's kind of an EBITDA adjustment to say maybe the seller's been undercharging or overcharging or not charging rent. Is there, is there maybe a little bit more wiggle room there or do you get slapped on the wrist for that too? You
1: will get slapped on the wrist if you do something <laughs> way out of market. We do always uh-huh. make though that market rent adjustment and it does, you know, there's a lot of small deals where the seller owns the real estate and the stated EBITDA in the SIM is way off because of that market rent adjustment. Once you get to that, you go, oh, wait a minute, you know, here's, here's a problem. Uh, some of the brokers don't don't pick up on that or don't do it on on purpose, I guess. Uh, but yeah, the, you can't really get around the earnout rule; it'll get flagged somewhere by a bank.
0: So bankers know what they're doing; they're actually smart.
1: I think so. Well,
0: okay. So I think that's another <laughs> phenomenon of what's going on right now is I'm seeing tons of banker turnover. Like, like I'm just seeing people that like. The, just one day like you get a phone call and the guy's like hi my name's jim i'm your new loan officer and i'm like what happened to jill we just worked with her for 15 years where'd she go and and the way their comp and and non-compete agreements are written like they're not even allowed to talk to you for some period of time right? right that's how the banks protect themselves and it's like you get this like and then there's ones who had like weird uh competitive things where they're like allowed to talk to you, but not about business. So like start sending you gift cards and stuff. It's like, what just happened? So, I mean, for me and, you know, getting to know you, Heather, was like huge to really crystallize this. It's like people think they're doing business with a bank and you're not. Like you're doing business with a loan officer, a credit officer, and then their investment committee, and then the bank CEOs and processes that they're putting in. And like, that's something to watch for. Like, especially if your bank is one that I would call like a tourist bank that just came into this type of lending during the boom time because they were trying to deploy money and then your loan officer leaves, like you sure as heck better be getting in there worrying about your debt structure and making sure it's stable for the long term because stuff's about to change. You just, you just, you're getting a new loan officer. That's a new bank as far as I'm concerned. It is. It's,
1: and a lot of times uh, the good loan officers, when they're leaving, it's, because the bank is no longer going to be entertaining something. And that lender yeah. will say, you know, then that that kills my book of business. I'm going to go to another bank that does. So you can usually kind of read the tea leaves, uh, even if the bank doesn't. The bank never announces, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. But they just stop doing it and they start making different decisions. And the, the lenders leave. So it is very, very interesting. <laughs> and you're right. They're not allowed to solicit their past uh, oh. clients. Yeah.
0: Uh, and they'll send you, they they won't actively ever get out of a light of business. They send you a term sheet that's basically the, you have to read between the lines. It's the, we wish, we we hope you will leave as a customer, but not really. Uh, which is what, actually, as a side for you, what soured me on private schools as a concept was when my son had a disability, a learning disability, and they discovered it in the middle of the first grade. And basically, the head of the school called us in and was like, well, we're not going to ask you to leave but there are a lot of public schools that would be better for your son. And I was like, you mf wow. you piece of crap. <laughs> like this. But yeah, you will get that. You got to listen for that term sheet with your bank. Like, do they send you that one? And uh, yeah, well, by the way, one of my companies just got one.
1: <laughs> I was like, I oh, think, this is... A- <laughs> yeah, like that's not really a term sheet. It's like, we give you something, but it really means something else. You know, the, there's a couple of things that people might find interesting. Um the, the lender part, where you said, you know, you're really doing business with the lender. The same bank will sometimes get the same deal from two different lenders in their bank. And one hmm. can get it approved and the other one can't. Hmm. The exact same. So so the interface, the person that's bringing it into committee can actually sweeten the deal. You know, the, the bank might trust one or feel more comfortable with one than the other. So it truly is, even in the same organization, depends on who you work with within that organization there are, they're not the same and they won't even be able to get the same things done. Um, So I I find that pretty interesting. And the other part about like term sheets that have terms you don't really like, and you're thinking, wow, why'd they give me this? A lot of times what happens is, and this was one of my pet peeves, is the lender will take the, the deal to committee and to the credit folks, and they'll explain why the customer wants what they want, why they're structuring it the way, why it's important to them. That's their job. They do, they do that. And then the credit person who has the decision-making power will decide that the deal will just be better their way. <laughs> and they will just restructure it and say, yeah, I'll give you the approval, but it has to be like this. And even though they know that that's not, what, that's not really going to work, that's not what everybody wants, um, they kind of throw that out and just just change the terms. It, it happens in every bank. It's really frustrating.
2: Well, and one of those people is a salesperson, right? And they're trying to get you on the hook because they want to bring something to committee and that's important for their livelihood. But then the compliance person has no outward facing sales. Like they they don't care, right? Their job is to protect, you know, the bank and the bank shareholders uh, deposits and also to mitigate risk because they're regulated and, and they only have certain, uh, you know, bounds to operate in. But it's amazing the things that, you know, the, the variance that happens between, you know, you you talk to the sales guy, you're like, okay, he's got it, he knows what I want, and you know, maybe I have like a, a an email, but not a full term sheet, and then all of a sudden you get the term sheet, and it just feels like the rug got pulled out from under you because a different guy makes the decision.
1: That's right, and the and the different guy doesn't really, not that they don't care, but uh, you know, they 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 need to look good internally. That's really what mm-hmm. matters. The sales guy needs yeah. to look, look good to you externally. The, the credit guy needs to, or gal needs to look good internally and giving, you know, tighter terms makes them look better. Even if it's not, doesn't really make the deal better sometimes, you know, statistically some of this stuff doesn't really matter in terms of risk, but you know, that's the whole way it kind of, the sausage gets made in, internally in a bank.
0: Yeah. In, any other trends from, from you guys then I'd love to talk a bit about, like, how should listeners be navigating this environment and uh, advice for them there? But any other kind of trends you guys see? I just, I spouted all the stuff I'm seeing. I talked about tourist banks, loan officers trading, you know, trading banks, tightening credit market, like just whimsical nose, Any other stuff kind of as trends we're seeing?
1: Mostly what you said, you know, prices remaining stable, but bigger and more interesting seller notes. Instead of lowering yeah. the prices, they're they're doing that instead.
2: I'm seeing a lot of, Banks that are focused on their deposits, but they are not just saying that, right? They're waving really high money market rates in your face. I got an email today and somebody's like, hey, you know, I, I know that you're not looking to switch banks, but basically, do you want to move some of your deposits? Um, because they now all of a sudden have a lot bigger spread to play with. Banks had gotten used to making money in a low interest rate environment. As interest rates go go up, there's a lot more wiggle room for them to be able to play that spread. And so all of a sudden, you know, your money markets might have been like, you know, 10, 15, 20 basis points. And now you're talking about, you know, we get money market rates that are over, you know, 3%. That's it's just cash on cash. You know, I mean, it's it's very, very compelling to, you know, to wave that carrot in some people's face. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a, a million dollar, or two million dollar outflow and inflow into a different bank just because they have a little bit more money market.
1: Well, and there's more to that, I think, just to add on there, it's it's that Silicon Valley bank effect, right? There was this huge flight to quality. So businesses that had a lot of deposits, now usually, now they have two banks. If they might've had one bank before, they may have two banks now. And one of them might be a big money center bank like Chase, and then their re- they're regular banks. So those smaller banks that do all the lending in this space, the big banks don't do the lending in this space, the small ones do. Those are kind of deposit starved a little bit they're having to spend a lot more on their deposit programs on the interest rates that they offer to be competitive with those, you know, with that outflow that they saw and that will, that they'll probably continue to see permanently, you know, they will not have the same deposit base. because it everyone wants to move the uninsured money to a bigger, a bigger bank. And that's, I think that's a huge change and it's probably a long-term one too. It's
0: fascinating. Um, Okay. So uh, next topic, I'd love to dig in on this. If you're a borrower, what are some things that you should be doing differently to CYA? Cover your, cover your buttocks.
1: Well, I give my clients, so I, I run Viso Business Capital, and I give my clients the advice that sometimes they don't want to hear. We need to wait sometimes before we submit the deal to the bank. We don't need to just mm-hmm. get an LOI and run straight to the bank and before we have a Q of E, before we have some of our diligence items in, because what's happening very often now is retrades. Right, so we're getting. Um, we we can kind of spot them coming. You know, you can look at certain deals and say, ah, this is on cash, uh, it is, and it's going to be converted to accrual after the QOV. E. That's going to change some things. There's some weird ad backs that have to be verified. Let's wait sometimes, not always, but let's wait sometimes and get the QOV e and get the answers to certain really important questions. Then we go to the bank. The reason for that is the less time we spend in the credit process, the better the more times we have to go back and and change things and ask for a different amount or whatever, it gives the credit committee a chance to change their mind from the decision they made in the first place. And some of the things they said they were fine with, they might say, well, now I'm not fine with it. Um, so my advice is get organized before you go to the bank and have all those, at least 80% of the questions answered before you go. And sometimes that may even mean getting the QOV first. It's a little scary for some people to do it but uh, it, it does yield better results. You get through credit faster and cleaner.
2: Heather, that brings up an interesting point. I, I've had these instances where, you know, in my distorted thinking, I'm like, I'm just going to talk to one bank and I'll just focus all my energy on this one person and hope that they bring me the best deal and their pencil as sharp as possible. And then I go out and I, oh, I get disappointed and I'm like, wow, that's not at all what I thought it was going to be. And then I start talking to other banks and you don't want to have to do this. I feel disingenuous sometimes doing it. But all of a sudden, when there's, you know, one one of my old clients used to say, hey, if you want to sell, you know, nine puppies, invite 10 people to the puppy party. Introduce some scarcity, right? So go to these lenders and say, hey, I'm actively looking for term sheets. Here's the information. I have it already. All of a sudden, they're realizing, okay, this isn't the I'm not the only person they've sent this to. And you say, hey, look, I'm expecting to get, you know, term sheets back by, you know, three weeks from now from a bunch of lenders. And I I, it's amazing the quality of term sheet and the way that it improves, especially if even not like disclosing somebody's term sheet to another lender, but just saying, hey, here's the deal that I'm getting. All Mm -hmm. of a sudden, my deals that I've had drastic, drastic improvement and not not being, you know, untruthful, just saying, hey, this is what somebody else is willing to do. All of a sudden, they go. Well, hang on. We don't want to miss out on that. Maybe maybe we could get more comfortable if I take that back to credit.
1: Yeah, real, really good points because the banks want to know what their competitors are doing. Sometimes mm-hmm, they'll yeah. be a little skeptical. Like they, you know, internal talk will be. I'm not sure they can get a bank to do this. I, I've heard that many times.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, th- no other bank is going to do this, and I'm thinking that's not true. There is other banks that are going to do it, uh, <laughs> and so there's a little bit of, of a cat and mouse that goes on there. But what what I do is I I use a data room system. And my banks, first of all, know that I'm that I'm capable of going very easily to another bank. Everything's all in one place, and I can shut off your access with one one button. So I I give them read only access for the in- initial period. Um, so they know that they d- they don't have anything. They get to look. They get to make a decision. They get to ask questions. If they're not going to issue a term sheet, we can we can move on very quickly. But I think it's it is important that you introduce that um, competitiveness. And uh, but a lot of them will internally start thinking that no other bank is going to do what they're going to do. So it is something you have to overcome.
0: So switching gears a little bit, we're almost out of time. But one I would add, like, this is a great time if you have standing debt for your business, like, go look at how far out you have it, right? Like, if if you have a nine month cliff where your loan, you know, is expected to be renewed at that point, do you have 24 months, Do you have 18 months you know, this is a great time to be talking. You want to be talking extension before you need the extension, if that makes sense. Like, I I, I don't want to, you don't want to be that person that's like three months before renewal and you're like, okay, well, uh, can we start talking renewal now? Like, it. you want to be talking about it. One of my companies is doing it 11 months before expiration, which lets them know, hey, we want to do... The bank, no, hey, we want to renew this right now. We want the stability of it. Are we going to go start shopping it? And uh, that's really powerful to make sure that you. are I mean, the worst thing that can happen is you have a liquidity crunch, right? Like they call up and say, "Hey, we want the money back," and you're like, "What money? Yeah. It's in the dirt or whatever." So anyway, that's really we lost smart. Mills. Maybe, he, maybe, yeah. he like my, <laughs> maybe he didn't like my. Maybe he didn't like
1: my talk. He's going to call his bank. He's going to get that uh, process yeah. started. That's what he did. <laughs>
0: <laughs> his South Carolina internet not so good.
1: That's
0: right. Um. Cool. Anything else people should be doing now, you know, this um, in terms of how they think about banks, do you think?
1: No, I, I think it's just, uh, I think we covered most of it, but just uh, be ready that um, maybe the first request that you make is not going to be the one that you you're, you have to be flexible um, and yeah, be prepared 100%. and maybe don't spend a lot of time going back and forth with the bank. Get the deal fully baked before you go in uh, so that there's not a lot of changes.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think the good news is like I've been around and you were around in 08, 01, I guess 93 was the one before that, but I was still in high school. Uh, where, you know, and I guess there was also one that happened mid COVID for three days when everybody thought the world was going to stop yeah, spinning. That's true. But like, you know, you want to be ready for a liquidity crunch. But like right now, we don't have one. Like there's still liquidity in the system. It's just, little bit harder to get money which is kind of how it's been all the time <laughs> it's a little True. we're just reverting back to the mean a bit right and uh you know just you want to make sure you're not when the one of the people that when the tide goes out you've been swimming naked that's right. that's the important thing a- and not I that you would ever do that heather no we
1: know, no we know please.
0: you're you're a classy lady that's the way this works
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that would that would never happen to me but I, I do think, uh, it, you know, this is not really that bad. You know, like you said, we've been around uh, a while and uh, 2008, that was pretty bad. This is not that bad. This is really minor. And actually, that it, it is kind of funny for me that most of the bankers I work with weren't around in banking in 08. So to right. them, I think it does seem worse than it is. Uh, they had 15 years of, of easy, good times, and, and it, it seems a little worse to them, but it really isn't that bad. Uh, businesses are doing pretty well. The default rates really haven't gone up. Significantly, um, and I think we're we're doing pretty good for you know a, a difficult time. It's it's really minor. Hundred percent.
0: All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. And uh, yeah, appreciate you guys doing a uh, doing an audible today. I thought this was really cool. Yeah. So, but yeah, I I mean, I got I've been getting a lot of questions about debt. Like, I think this was a great thing to do. Hopefully, the audience likes it. If you like this or hated it, like, tell us about it on the socials, and uh, we'll try to do better next time. If you hated it, or I don't know. Consider some of the other podcasts out there. I heard Joe Rogan's great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I
0: don't uh, whatever. So my funny story for you: my son, you know, he's been stuck in the house a lot with health problems, and he he's fourteen. And he he said, "Dad, whatever whatever the opposite of homesick is, I'm that. Like I want to oh, be out, out of the house." Sick.
1: Yeah, he wants. And, to And uh,
0: that's how I kind of feel about some of these discourses on Twitter or discourses on Joe Rogan. I'm just like. Whatever that is, I want to be the opposite of that. Right. That's the podcast I want to do is the exact opposite of like talking about vaccines or arguing about whether a home is an investment or is a mortgage a good thing. Like I just, I'm not interested. And why do people just, want <laughs> to
1: be angry? I don't get that. It's, I just don't get it. Why is that thrilling for uh, people? Why is that a, a form of entertainment now? But it is, sadly.
0: I don't know. I don't know. It's just not stuff I want to talk about. I just want to be constructive and positive and build a better life for me and the people around me. Yeah. And maybe, maybe, maybe this is, this is the wisdom of age we have. Heather. I maybe think so.
1: I think it is. I I, I find a lot of things uh, I think about differently as I get older. And I'm honestly, one, one of them is, really is that money doesn't really matter. It just yeah. doesn't really matter. And we spend too much time thinking about it and we spend, we should spend more time thinking about the, the positive things we want to do the productive things we want to do the money comes if you know but we, we, we we're we too focused on money
0: i uh you know i'm taking spanish lessons and i'm getting as they say mejor which is better in spanish
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah there's my one spanish word is about bilingual now but uh like i talked to my spanish tutor is this lady she's very well educated her husband's like a celebrity chef like she does cool. tours in spain and in France, and all the conversations are like America versus Europe or versus the rest of the world and cultures. And invariably, she's like, I don't understand this. Why would Joe Rogan do this? Or, like, why would you guys do this? Or, like, why do you buy so many gifts to take home when you're on, you know, trips? And, like, invariably, my answer is always like America has a fixation with money. Like, and we equate money to success, to health, to happiness, to wealth, to intelligence. And, uh, and she's like, that's crazy. And I'm like, yeah, that kind is crazy. (laughs) Thanks for asking.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And because somebody made money doesn't make them smart. And I can say that as a banker, I can see what money people make. And there's a lot of not smart people that made a lot of money and vice versa. It has nothing to do with each other.
0: Intimately. And then you, I think you double click on that and you see the way you, you're like, wait, you just made a hundred million dollars and you realize they just got super duper lucky, lucky. Super duper lucky, right? It's like you just happen to be in the right place at the right time for somebody to come along and like the lottery ticket paid off, and it's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't. I shouldn't assume rich people are smart.
1: You shouldn't. You really should not. Yeah, and (laughs) and you shouldn't assume what wealth people have by what they show, because that is it's usually pretty opposite. (laughs)
0: Let's go.
1: Amazing. All right,
0: great episode. Thanks for doing it today. See you back tomorrow. And thanks everybody for listening.
1: We appreciate y'all.